Although I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Dorkness Chatcast. I am your host, Billy Das, the Indie Dork. Joining me today is Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Ah! I'm sorry. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited today. Um, so today, you're excited every day, Billy. I well, look, I live in a state of excitement. Um, some would call that an anxiety problem. Have you ever <laughs> gone and just listened to all our intros to all our interviews? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I've listened to them in sequence as we put them out. Sure, but am sure. I always excited? Am uh, I always at 11? We both are. We're always like, <laughs> I can't believe we're doing this. This is another epic episode of the Itmon Chatcast. <laughs> we are so excited because we love doing what we're doing, and it really is a privilege and an honor to have cool filmmakers to chat to. It's always joyful. And every week I'm surprised someone's like, yeah, I'll come on your show. <laughs> right. It's such a shock every yeah. single time, right? So, yeah, let's let, – who are we talking to this week? Because so, wild. It is. It is wild. Uh, so we're talking to uh, Riley Stearns, who's the writer and director of a new movie called The Art of Self-Defense, starring Jesse Eisenberg as a, a lost man seeking uh, a home, a place to belong at a martial arts studio. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think that's a fair description. It's like it. uh, the karate middle-aged guy <laughs> instead of the karate kid. <laughs> the karate kid is as a man our age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very, very the, the karate sad, sad man, man our age. Uh, uh, but no, I, you know, I'm really excited to talk to, to Riley today because uh, his first movie uh, is False, which stars uh, Mary Elizabeth Win- Winstead and Leland Orser uh, in a like a cult deprogramming scenario. And it is... Easily one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's one of the best movies of the last 10 years, without a doubt. When we first got together and started podcasting was around the time that Faults dropped. And that was one of the first movies that we really bonded on as like, oh my God, this is a movie that everybody needs to be watching and talking about. I still remember watching that movie for the first time because I watched that movie on my deck uh, alone by myself. Uh, and then I followed it up with uh, These Final Hours, which is a, an Australian movie about uh, the end of the world. Oh, I thought you meant the Chris Pine movie, The Finest Hours. <laughs> I like that film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a fine film, too. Uh, but no, I, like, I just I remember like those movies together were such an emotional wallop to me where it was like, you know, there are those periods where you, like, you catch a movie for the first time and you're just like invigorated by that experience. Experience and you're like, man, fucking movies are rad. Um, and Riley Stearns is a guy who made one of those movies for me. Yeah. Uh, and now he's back with The Art of Self-Defense and also a really damn good movie with an amazing lead performance from Jesse Eisenberg. I, I think it's a fascinating movie. And for all of like the weird intricacies and stuff of faults that I think that people who've seen it really uh, respond to, I think The Art of Self-Defense kind of takes that and turns it up to 11. Yeah, yeah. Watch the trailer. 
or better yet, watch the movie and then come back to this conversation because Riley has a lot of interesting things to say. I think we do need to preface this conversation. You know, we did it via Skype and yeah. Riley's in a conference room somewhere on speaker. Right. So it has that aesthetic to it. So prepare your ears. Uh, but it's such great content. You're really not going to care. Our tones will be as dulcet as always because yes. we're using yes. our microphones. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what's going on with that. Um, do we need to say anything no, else? No, let's get into it. All right. Well, let's go into the conversation. Well, uh, welcome along to the uh, podcast, Riley. It's nice to have you along. Uh, we've got the writer and director of uh, The Art of Self-Defense and also of Faults, one of my favorite movies. Uh, welcome along to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And it's always nice when you start off a conversation and somebody likes your work. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I know a lot, of, a lot of times in interviews, you know, people uh, lean into like, oh, yeah, I love your work. But man, I fucking love Faults. That movie is great. And I enjoyed the heck out of The Art of Self-Defense. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I taught Taekwondo, uh, for a few years, uh, while I was in college and I just, I really grabbed on to, uh, like some of the little details that you have, uh, with, with Jesse Eisenberg, especially with like some of the emotional validation he has when he gets a compliment from sensei. Like, I love that stuff. It felt so real. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I, well, first of all, you saying fuck is great because now I know I can curse if I need to. I don't make a habit out of it, but it's nice to know that that's an option, uh, if need be. Uh, but yeah, second of all, I, I, I've been training jujitsu now for, for six years. And uh, I think that even though jujitsu, karate, taekwondo, hapkido, like whatever, they're all different martial arts. At the end of the day, they have a very similar structure of uh, learning and validation. And the validation is a very funny part of it. I don't feel like I'm a, a one of those people who's belt obsessed, especially I would say that jujitsu kind of, kind of actively pushes against you feeling validated by belts like you it takes longer to get your black belt than any other martial art um or at least in terms of like uh modern martial arts uh, a lot of them now really kind of sell you your belt and jujitsu is one of the kind of holdouts of no you have to earn it you have to really really put in the work to get uh to progress through the belt so all that stuff is is very true for me too. Like I, I put personal feelings and and stuff into the into the film for sure. And uh, one of those things is just that, like you said, the validation from your instructor when he walks by or she walks by and you're doing a move that they just showed and you do it right. And they're like, good job. Like that was, that was perfect. It's hard not to feel like your dad just gave you a compliment. And did that, that you, you thought never loved you or he never hugged you and is all of a sudden giving you this validation. It's a really good feeling. And, and I wanted to kind of play around with that. And, and as well, I wanted to have this, this feeling of when you get a belt uh, in your, your new color, you have this weird sense of like pride that, that color represents you and suits you more than you, you like kind of thought it would. And I, I found myself when I got my blue belt, my first colored belt, uh, two years into actually three years almost into jujitsu, uh, felt like this weird feeling of, I want to put this on. And my, like I'm alone in the house. So I may as well just like practice tying it around my waist and stuff. 
all that shit is so funny and, and hilarious to think about. But yeah, you have real like pride learning martial arts. I, I think that's what makes it such a um, such a fascinating place for you to set this particular story. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit curious then, you know, from that perspective, right, of emotional validation and sort of our, our susceptibility to that of of like it that really taking on a, a, a weird out of proportion significance in our lives. Um, what what for you is the attraction of writing and, uh, and making movies about people who are lost? I don't know. I think I, it's not a conscious decision necessarily. I do think that I'm drawn to characters that are flawed and, and wanting to feel like they're belonging to something, but maybe they don't. Um, and I think that, that a lot of that probably just comes from like my favorite movies kind of tend to be that. I, I'm, I'm a huge uh, Coen Brothers fan and, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson fan, and I feel like I, a lot of times you're you're following characters that are, are just searching for something and they don't necessarily know what that something is, but uh, you're along with them and, and discovering that with them. And, and for me, Ansel kind of falling into the darkest, like I think the way that I always described it and the way that I told Leland to think about it was that Ansel starts in a dark place he ends up in a place that he thinks is better, but it's actually even worse. Like, that's what I wanted it to feel like. And and with Casey, it's not necessarily the same thing, but Casey starts in a pretty bad place. And I do think that he, in the, I guess it's a counterfall, hopefully ends up in a better place. But he has to sacrifice some of his morality in the process. I don't think it ever should be cut and dry, the character wins. I think that even if they win, they need to have, they need to lose something and have some sense of self-sacrifice in the process. And that, for me, it just comes from, I think that that's just more interesting. I think that those stories speak to us as people more um, going through traumatic experiences in life and, and coming out the other side, but still feeling the scars of what you learned along the way. I think that all that stuff is relatable and important, and I think that it makes a better narrative, too. Well, how did you land on the style of performance or the reality of performance that is in the art of self-defense? Uh, it's somewhat like faults, but also I think it feels like even a few more steps heightened. Yeah, I think that that's fair. So I, I made a, I, I made a uh, short called Cub in 2012 that ended up playing Sundance in 2013. And that short really was me finally finding the, vo- the voice and the tone that I had kind of been searching for in myself. Uh, it was the kind of stuff that I enjoyed watching, something that was a little off-kilter and a little uncomfortable and a little stylized, but not so much that it felt not grounded anymore. Um, and I, I felt like uh, the Cub was the, the kind of that, that first step into that world. And then very shortly after the Cub, like not very shortly, immediately after the Cub, I wrote Fault. I got back from Sundance and I wrote Fault in two weeks. Uh, and Keith and Jeff Calder at Snood Entertainment uh, ended up meeting with me and I pitched them the entire story and they read the script and a week later they said that they wanted to make it. So it was like, it was an immediate uh, transition from short film to feature and I knew that I wasn't going to get away with doing something as overtly stylized as The Cub as my first feature. I felt like I had to tiptoe into that tone because it is kind of one of those things that somebody can write maybe and then their way of directing it doesn't work um, or, or you got, you kind of have to prove yourself a little bit. So with Fault, I actively, 
actively held myself back totally to where I've even seen this in reviews where some people said that they wish to push the weird a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with that. I think that I knowingly did hold back on the weird because there's a fine line of how much I felt like I was going to get away with being able to make as a first feature. But I do think that that was a great calling card. Um, I mean, I'm not hugely proud of Falls. I wouldn't change anything because uh, I think that it's a film that I... Uh, it's the film that I wanted to make. But like you're saying, I knew that I wanted to up the ante a little bit more with the art of self-defense. And I knew that I was going to get a little bit more leeway to do so, having made something as stylistically uh, different as false, maybe compared to other independent films. I don't feel like false feels like a lot of other indies. And I felt like I wanted to have even more of that uh, uh, separation from independent films with my next feature. And, um, to be fair, I think that I went so far that uh, in, in that tonal shift into this, this world where I still had people saying, we've seen Falls and we still are scared of this tone. <laughs> sure. Um, but, and I had some producers in particular just said that it, it was too much for them and they didn't trust that I was going to be able to do it. And that's fair. That's totally fair. But at the end of the day, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I was going to be able to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And it just took finding that one producer to say yes. And that ended up being Andrew Korshak and NQ, just getting it and responding to it and really just saying, this is the movie you want to make. I'm there to help you make it. And so, uh, yeah, the movie wouldn't have happened without Andrew stepping in and, and, and trusting me. Um, but then I had to deliver and that is a tricky undertaking. And I, uh, I can, I can imagine all day long that I know what I want, but then when you're on set the first day and you're delivering some lines that we were delivering, uh, it's scary to say the least, but I am glad that I went through that process and I feel even more confident going into feature number three now. Well, so that's my question. Is this a style and a, a, a tonal reality that you want to live in? Yeah, this is my, I mean, Duel, the next film, uh, D-U-A-L, it is very much a, like, you, you would read Faults or see Faults, then watch or read The Art of Self-Defense, and then read the script for Duel, and even if my name wasn't on it, somebody would say, oh, I bet Riley wrote this. Mm -hmm. That's my hope. Um, and I, I think that that was, a, that was a similar thing when I was it, getting to the edit room for the very first time with The Art of Self-Defense, and I saw the editor's that uh, Sarah Beth kind of put together, um, who she also cut faults with me. I, I had this sudden realization, which is so funny to say because obvious, it, it's so obvious, but I had this realization watching some of the scenes for the very first time that I need this. I think that like it looks like my thing. And uh, I, I think similarly with this next feature, you're not going to be able to watch it and not know that I made it, but I also want each time I make something, I want it to grow and, and be its own thing. And I want to learn and experiment as filmmaker too. But totally speaking, at least with these three, I want them all to feel like the, a similar world and, and like they, they're siblings of each other. Um, not necessarily the same universe, because I don't really go by that uh, way of, of thinking, but I, I do want them to feel like they're made by the same person. I, you know, and I, I think that's kind of a, a fascinating space to work in. Um, but, you know, filmmaking is also an extremely collaborative process. And a, a few minutes ago, you had mentioned kind of getting to the set that first day and, you know, hearing these words spoken aloud. Um, what's what's that relationship like with your actors as, as you sort of work to build a shared vision that inhabits a very specific creative space from your perspective? Well, Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg coming on the project was, like I said, he's the reason the film 
got made. I, I could have had a producer in place and never found the right actor. And we did, we did struggle finding a lead for the movie. And Jesse was the first person to like ask me when we first met, like, who'd you offer to before me? And, and he, he genuinely just is, is curious and he doesn't take offense to the fact he knows like how movies come together and, and what, uh, what it kind of takes to find the right pieces for the puzzle. But Jesse, Jesse came in with a sense of trust that I don't think I was expecting, uh, especially from somebody as established and talented as he is. Uh, I mean, he's an Academy Award nominated actor and is so incredibly intelligent and he's a writer himself. But I think I was, I was expecting maybe a person to come in and say, look, this works, this doesn't, let's change this. But like, I, I like your idea here, but maybe mine is better. Jesse showed up and said, I want, I love your script, uh, and I want to help you deliver your vision. And it's, it's funny to think about, uh, now any, any other thoughts in my head because I'm so just used to the way that he wanted to work. And, um, and going forward, I think that I'll, I'll hopefully be able to continue that process, especially now with, with two features under my belt. I, I think that actors kind of coming in are going to know this is the way that Riley works, this is his style, and I'm here to kind of help his vision come to fruition. But Jesse, Jesse took a chance on me and said, whatever you need, I'm there for. And, and it was hugely rewarding. And, and, and that came from discussions, that came from uh, conversations leading into the, the shoot and, and during the shoot. And him literally sometimes just saying, uh, I don't know exactly what you want here. Um, can you give me a line reading? And hmm. actors are notorious like for not wanting, not even notorious, because <laughs> that makes it sound like it's a negative. Actors want to find it on their own sometimes with your help. And Jesse oftentimes would literally say, you know this, this is your story. Like, just tell me what you want here. And I, I would say, well, I'm not a good actor. So like, it, but it's something along the, the, these lines. And he was, he's talented enough and comfortable enough in his own skin and with his own craft that he didn't take offense to that. And he would say, no, no, I know that you're not an actor. I am. So just say it kind of how you want it said. And I, I think I'll be able to figure out what you're looking for. And so it was a super collaborative process. And uh, I love working with new people, but I also am excited because uh, Jesse wants to work on, on things in the future. And I just feel like I found a kinship with him that, that uh, hopefully something comes along again that we can work together on and, and continue our collaboration and, and uh, discussions and, and exploration of, uh, of, of story. Now, you know, going back to kind of where we opened the conversation, talking about emotional validation and like the, the, the weird sense of, of evaluation that we get from other people's things. When Jesse says, hey, man, I'm here to do your script. Are you the kind of person that it, like that emboldens you? And you're like, yes, let's take off the reins and do something. Or is that intimidating in that moment? It, it, I think it's more just a relief than anything, because even if an actor came in and wanted to change things and tweak things, I'll be honest, for the most part, I would probably have to find a clever or careful way of not doing what they're asking. <laughs> like, so I know what I want and uh, to a fault. And, and like some people might argue that uh, my stuff doesn't work for them because of A, B, or C. But at the end of the day, I made what I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. And fault is an example of that. And the art of self-defense is definitely an example of that. I actually am surprised that it, as many people are responding to it and relating to it as, as there are, because I think I thought that it was going to be slightly more divisive than it is or than it has been so far. And granted, there are people who are going to hate it, and I know that, 
but I also think I, I kind of subscribe to the idea that if everyone loves your thing, then you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And if everyone hates your thing, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I do like to kind of live in the gray area of challenging and uh, um, surprising an audience. But I think that more people are relating to it than I was expecting. And that's really cool. But if Jesse had come in or any actor had come in and tried to, and I've, I've had this happen before with, with more peripheral characters where they want to do something a specific way or they want to improv and, and it's, it's kind of, it's my, it's my show. And I'm, I'm definitely there uh, in a kind of sense that I want to collaborate with people and I want to explore things, but I need it my way first. And so uh, it would have been one of those things where Jesse came in that I think you should do this. I think I should do it this way. Uh, it's, it's trying to corral those fears or, or, or thoughts and get what you need, but also let them feel comfortable and feel like they're not just a puppet. Um, but I, I think Jesse uh, just is kind of the perfect personality and, and lacks this, this ego that some actors uh, have where he was there to just see my vision through. And um, I, I was spoiled, to be honest. I think it's one of those movies where you see the performance and then you try to imagine casting it any other way and it just doesn't work for me. So like, it, I can't imagine the film without Jesse at this point. Yeah, no, I can't either. And I think that I, I keep saying like, it's cliche, but it totally is that I literally cannot see anybody else in the role. Um, and I don't know how we found him and how he found us, but I felt like, even though I don't believe in faith, it, it almost feels like a meant to be thing. But I think that I could say the same thing about false. I don't think I could see anybody else in the Leland Dorser role, uh, or sorry, Leland, Leland Dorser's role as Ansel. I don't think I could see anybody else as, as Claire other than Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I don't think Anna could have been played by anybody else other than Imogen Poots. It's just all of those things kind of um, find a way of working out. And if they don't in the init- initially you find a way of making it work to the point that you you can't see anybody else in the role. I, I don't think you should ever make a movie and say, damn, man, I wish like I could have gotten Leonardo DiCaprio for that. Like, I wouldn't want Leonardo DiCaprio in any role in either of these two movies. I would love to work with him in the future on something. Like, that's, 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 that's beside the point. I just think that you as a director uh, and, and, and creative on, on something, you should believe in your people to the death <laughs> in a certain way where like, I, I'm just, I'm glad that things have worked out the way that they've worked out. And Jesse, like I said, to his credit, was, was very curious about his, uh, the people who were offered the role before him. And uh, I, I always told this one story in interviews, like this thing where my very first meeting with him, I was at a coffee shop down the street. He was already just telling me how much he loved the script. And I was, I was already kind of shell shocked or sorry, like starstruck, I guess is the, the better <laughs> word. And, and just like, this is Jesse Eisenberg sitting in front of me telling me he likes my thing. And then out of nowhere, he goes, who else did you offer it to before me? And I think most actors don't want to know that or they want to pretend like that they were the only person that was ever, ever thought of for the role. And I just had to trust that he really legitimately was asking that question. So I was like, well, it's funny you ask. Like, you actually know one of them. I, I sent it to so-and-so. And, and the next day they wrote back and said that they loved the script, but that they couldn't play a weak character. Hmm. And I just was like so dumbfounded by that and he goes yeah I mean you're a fucking actor like why wouldn't you want to play a like character that's not like you and I was like oh my god I know right like that's crazy and we, we were able to bond over that um, 
and also it kind of hammered home that this was the right movie to be making. It was scaring guys. It was scaring uh, the, the masculinity, uh, the, the fears of masculinity or, or not or not being masculine enough out of the guys that I was sending it to. And, and I just, I love that. And I love that Jesse didn't have those same fears and that he was ready to go kind of full force into them, if anything. And so, yeah, from day one, once Jesse and I had that first meeting, I was like, this is the guy, he's my guy. And uh, yeah, glad that it worked out the way that it did. So, uh, you know, I, I I definitely agree. It feels like a relevant movie that is speaking to today very much so. Uh, but you said it in a past era, and I'm kind of curious of how you landed on the time frame of the film. It's funny. I actually, I think I must have fucked something up along the way because... I, I didn't mean for it to feel like it was in the 90s, and that's what everyone's asking is like, oh, yeah? why did you set it in the 90s? And, and for me, I actually didn't set it in the 90s. For me, the intention was to have it feel like a blending of all kinds of times. Like he's driving uh, a Toyota Corolla from the early 2000s, and he's, he's listening to CDs, but he's also, there's VHS tapes, and his TV is old and shitty and kind of like borderline black and white. And then he's also listening to the cassette tapes, and, and then Sensei's using the camcorder for the 80s. I really wanted to just be a blending of things so that you never really felt like you were dated at all. Um, at least it doesn't feel like it's set now. That was my main thing. Is I just didn't want it to feel like you watched the movie in 2022, and you said, damn, man, that, like, I, it's so weird that, that that pop culture reference is there and that they're using an iPhone 8 and that it feels like very much like a movie that was set at the end of the, the, the 20 teens. So why is that important? For me, it was important to, to kind of just have it feel timeless. Like, I, I don't like watching a movie and feeling like it's specifically from one time period. Like, I don't, I don't want, and not to, like, shit talk anything else, because I don't mean it this way, but, like, I don't want somebody to watch my movie and feel like they're watching, I don't know, a DreamWorks animation thing where you've got uh, a Macarena in it or whatever. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want it to feel dated from that year that it came out. And so, for me, not putting cell phones in it, was a huge thing. I didn't want it to feel like uh, it's ever explained, has to be explained why their cell phone reception doesn't work or why the battery is running out on the phone. I just didn't want to put it in there. I, it's a, a sense of wanting it to feel timeless to future viewers, but also wanting to create its own world. And I think that through production design of trying to help it feel timeless, it's also setting the, the tone of the world and the, the, the feel of the world. And I like, I like world, world building, so that was important to me. And, and false... False isn't the same because I, it is specifically set in the 80s because that's the time period that uh, cold deprogramming kind of went out of favor and it was changing more to exit counseling and, and other methods for getting people out of cults. But I did want false to also feel in a sense timeless. Like it's never implicitly stated when it's set, but you kind of can gather based on the the uh, years of the cars and, and the look of the, the rooms and the, the fashion and, and all of that. But even then, I didn't want scrunchies or neons or, or like traditionally, like overtly 80s things. My, my costume designer and I, and production designer and I, talked about, well, what's the small town version of the 80s? Well, the small town version of the 80s before the internet was the 70s. So it's, everything's just a little bit behind. And so that, I, I always go about things in a way that I'm, I'm trying to actively think about, is this going to add to or take away from something? And uh, I think that sometimes putting too much from a current time period can take away. Hmm. 
At least with my stuff. So, I mean, it, it comes up then that, like, you know, we're talking a lot about masculinity in, in the course of this movie. And, and uh, you know, Jesse's character, Casey, is, is working through his own issues with it. Um, what, does it what does it mean to you to be a good man? I think it's not even a good man. Um, I was talking, I, I did a podcast with my friend recently where he asked me what, what men should take away from this and what you're trying to say about masculinity. And I think it's actually just, I'm trying to say overall, like to people of every uh, gender, um, that it just, it's okay to be yourself. And I think that was the biggest struggle that I was having when I was like right around the time that I was writing it. Is I was afraid of other men who just were so overtly manly because I thought that it was this disingenuous thing. I felt like they were trying to put on an act and trying to pretend to be something because that's what society was telling them to think. Hmm. And I didn't want that. And I didn't want that for myself, but I also felt like I still wanted that validation too. And so that, there was that, that mixed signal thing happening in my own head and, and I, I read a quote kind of as I was like in the middle of writing the script that, that very, very loosely inspired a monologue that Casey has um, by Tom Hardy, uh, where he was like, what was he saying? It was something, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but he was basically saying that he was afraid of other men and that if he'd go to the gym, he was, he was intimidated by them and, and that he didn't feel like he belonged. And what he liked, though, is that because he was an actor, he felt like that even though he wasn't them, that he could mimic them and he could become them and he could take those mannerisms and, and play with them and, and pretend. And I thought that that was just so fascinating that somebody who is, in my opinion, is like super manly and masculine and, and, and confident in himself had those same fears that I had. And then it really kind of opened up the doors for me to think about, well, do more people think this way? Do women feel this way with other women? Um, I, I had an interview in Seattle with a, a, a journalist who, who's trans who said that she felt these feelings when she was uh, transitioning and, and like that she was able to relate to Casey's lack of belonging and wanting to belong, but feeling like uh, it was, it was uh, uh, putting on an act. And I just, I, I love that it doesn't have to be man or woman or, or anything in between. Um, it's just about being yourself and being human. Uh, it's super cliche, but if anything, I want people to take away from this movie that it's just okay to be yourself and, and you don't have to like, I guess, bend to what other people want you to be. Uh, as long as you're being a good person and being true to yourself, that's all that matters. Uh, and it's definitely an after school special like message, but I think that it's a message that we forget sometimes as adults. Why, why do you think that as people we're so, um, we're so inclined to become the things of which we are afraid? I mean, that's a, that's a big question. I, I think that I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's, it's funny. Like I, I think that it's what the, uh, it's what films you watch. It's the media that, that's kind of bombarding you and advertisements and everyone's trying to sell you something that is, is black or white. And I think that there's way more gray in the world than, than art sometimes lets you uh, acknowledge, especially when something's trying to commercialize you and, and sell you something. So I think that, yeah, for even, you can look at a film like Fight Club and, and I, I looked at it, uh, I, the first time I saw it, I was a teenager 
I watched it on DVD at my friend's house and we all watched it and thought, oh man, this movie's so fucking cool and so badass and like, oh, it's just so cool. They're just like fighting each other and like, hell yeah, that's like, we're dudes. And then you watch it as an adult and you're like, oh my God, this is making fun of all of that. And I think <laughs> a message that, that um, particular and that's like easy to miss is really fascinating, but also uh, led to so many people watching uh, uh, that film and not getting it. And I think it ended up, if anything, I think Fight Club just led to more people <laughs> starting Fight Club than questioning the toxic masculinity of the 90s kind yeah. of, that was so prevalent and is still prevalent. And, and I, I, when in making this, I just wanted to be as on the nose about the message as possible. I felt like that was, that was a humorous choice for me. Like that was, that was a definite on the nose um, decision that I wanted to make. But I also felt like there's no way that somebody's going to come out of this movie and believe that Sensei's like cool. I don't want anybody to think he's cool. I want them to be able to say, I love that character and how fucked up he is and how misplaced his, his uh, intentions and goals are. But I don't want anybody to come out and think like, I'm going to fucking start a, I'm going to go to karate and I'm going to beat the shit out of other dudes. And like, that's not the message that you're going to get from this movie. So maybe, maybe that, uh, the, the, like, the show forward advertisement movie, uh, this is an idea of a man and this is an idea of a woman, like that kind of bombarding people all the time. I just wanted to go the exact opposite direction in, in the way that I went about my thing. Yeah. So I think we're coming up to the end of our time here. Uh, and, you know, through our podcast, uh, we, we like to end on a, a very positive note on a specific uh, question. Um, you know, I think the through line of all the conversations we've had with the indie filmmakers is that, you know, making movies is just really fucking hard. Um, and it's really easy to feel very lowly when things are not working out right. And, and that's why we like to end on a positive note for this. So our, our question is to our guests uh, as we head out the door as always, is there a single moment that you can look back at in your career or your experience with these movies um, that uh, will that you can use to sort of boo you in low times and, and make you feel appreciative uh, for, for what you do have right now? I, there's so many things that come to mind. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll list two because one might be a little too like <laughs> a little too um, reaching for people who are maybe just starting out. But like I would say uh, when I first, let's see, even just being a production assistant, getting the opportunity to be a production assistant on a TV show, um, was, that, that was a huge uh, thing for me. And I, I worked in the writer's room on the show called Bionic Woman for NBC when I was 20 years old. And, and um, being in the room full of writers and, and feeling like I still belonged was huge. And a specific moment was they, I, the showrunner said to everyone in the room, I don't care if you're a writer or you're an assistant on this show, everyone's ideas matter. And you can hear that and not believe it and, and stuff. But I, there was one day where something came up and I, I said, well, how about this idea? And literally every writer in that room was like, that's a fucking great idea. That's going on the board. And they put that up on the board. And that was just one of those moments of like, my ideas matter. And I may be a kid and still learning, but like I, my, I, 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 I have value. I think that was huge. But then also um, a, a literal feel-good moment if I'm ever feeling down, which I haven't had to pull this out recently, but uh, definitely like the past couple of years have gone through some ups and downs and the ups have been really great, but the downs were really, really, really low. And I was, I was have these moments where I just like 
like, yeah, just feel like crying and just things aren't working. And even if it's not a career thing, it's just a life thing, just feeling depressed. I, uh, I recorded the audio for The Cub when it premiered at Sundance. I recorded the audience reaction on my phone. And I, I, Michael Mohan, a director friend of mine, said that I should do it just as a, you'll always be able to go back and listen to that and just like, if, if it was a positive thing, you'll be able to play that back and, and feel that feeling that you had when that was happening. And so on a whim, I did record the reaction for the Cub. Uh, and it was a midnight audience at the Library Theater at Sundance. And uh, I, I was just so excited to be there, but I was still so nervous. And I was playing before a feature. Um, and the, the short starts and there's a couple of chuckles and then something happened where it was just like the entire room was started laughing at every single thing that was, that was happening on screen and every joke was hitting better than I ever could have imagined and, and just like it was the best screen that that short's ever had and in my head I, I feel like if I hadn't recorded that I don't think I would have trusted my own uh, mem memory of that experience I feel like I would have always thought I'm just telling myself it was incredible but it probably wasn't as incredible as it was but I, because I have this evidence I have this audio recording of this experience and how like from one of the most incredible nights of my life I can go back and play that now anytime I'm feeling down uh, I, I, I would say that that's something that literally can make me feel better um, and it's again it's a uh, a reminder that, uh, yeah, that they're, 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 you have value, that you have, uh, that your ideas work, uh, that people like your stuff. All that stuff is, is hugely important to me still. And I, um, I definitely make things for myself, things that I want to see, but I don't do it in a way that's selfish. I do it in a way that I, I, I'm going after certain things and I want to explore certain ideas. But at the end of the day, you want people to also like your stuff and, and be able to relate to it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think that it's funny that I've, I've played at big festivals now with features, but the one thing that I always go back to is the feeling of that short premiering at Sundance and the way that that crowd reacted. I think that that, that set a tone for, for the rest of my career, hopefully, where I want to keep doing things that speak to me, but also that an audience can, can get something out of. And uh, I'm glad I have that, that evidence that, uh, that it worked. Well, Riley, I, I think that's a beautiful answer. I love it. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. This was really fantastic. And I'm just so excited that people are responding to the film the way they are. And, and uh, thank you guys for, for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. It really means a lot. Well, great. Uh, you have a great day. And uh, thanks very much. Yeah, take care. Talk to you later soon. And there you have it. Uh, yeah. Riley Stearns on the art of self-defense. Very and cool. Like the like the just the sheer joy of him finding a like a like a creative partner in Jesse Eisenberg to help make this movie into what it is. I loved hearing that. And I think we learned an important lesson in interview technique, Billy. <laughs> we have to start every conversation off by saying fuck so that we can put them on the uh, right it mod wavelength. Because so many interviews we've done where, you know, the, the person we're talking to goes like, oh, can I swear? And they're like, oh, yeah, fuck yes, you can. And they go, oh, fuck, we love saying fuck. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's important to establish you're on a podcast where you can say fuck. I, I agree that it is important. And I'll, sure, I'll go with the idea that that's a thing that I do to set the comfort level for our guests, as opposed to just the fact that I've got a filthy, foul mouth that can't be controlled. That you love the word fuck. 
Oh, I fucking do, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was a great conversation. Uh, you know, our thanks to Riley Stearns for taking the time out of his day to chat with us and to really give us some in-depth uh, converse, uh, you know, d- discussion points there. I, I think, you know, right, right after we finished the conversation, Brad and I were talking a little bit about... Um, like just just the way that he kind of describes his movie and his interest and the way that he said it in sort of a time in the world. Like I really couldn't have envisioned that answer when that question was asked. And it's like those are the moments that I love in these conversations that make it worthwhile is you're like you you they truly are conversational and you really don't know what you're going to get. And it is always fascinating. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, what? It's not a period <laughs> piece. Huh? Yeah. Are you sure about that, Riley? <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Which sure. is great. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I love that. Love that. that so, yes. Thank you to you, sir. Uh, the next time you're, he's doing a movie, we got to get him back on. For sure. I, I want to see this duel. Yeah, I don't know what duel is, uh, but I'm there for it. And uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm ready to go. All right, Billy. So uh, what else? What do we got? What are we excited about? What's going on? All right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, on Thursday, the 11th, uh, the Alamo Draft House is sponsoring an advanced uh, screening for the Art of Self-Defense. Uh, they're going to have uh, like a red carpet preview and then maybe I think a Q&A afterwards. Uh, if you've got an Alamo near you, definitely go and get it. I've got tickets to our local Alamo. I'm going to go see it on the big screen again. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, also on July the 11th, we have our conversation um, with uh, the folks from Horror Noir uh, talking about their documentary, which is continuing coverage from the Overlook Film Festival. Uh, and then coming up the week after that, uh, we've got our conversation with Larry Fessenden, which is going to wrap up our, our coverage of the Overlook Film Festival. Have I missed anything? I feel like we've I think got we're a lot. good. I think we I think I think that's it. It's going to be weird to get to the end of our Overlook Film Festival coverage. Yeah, it's bittersweet, right? Yeah. Like, and what's happening after that? I don't know. No idea. More rad conversations. I mean, there's always there's always uh, uh, pokers in the fire, but like. Who knows what's going to come together? Uh, we got to go to another film festival. That's what we got to do. Well, I'm getting on the plane this Sunday to San Diego for oh, Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, hopefully, I will uh, talk to some cool people there as well. Well, you got to you got to tackle some people, hold them down, and get them to do just uh, you know ten minutes of conversation. Tom Cruise, I know you're here to promote Top Gun too, but <laughs> can you just give us? 10 minutes of time. Well, I, you could challenge him to a fist fight. I All hear right. that's worked out well for Justin Bieber. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. <laughs> uh, Billy, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, at WBDAS. Uh, and you can also find me uh, at Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, which is a podcast I co-host with my nine-year-old daughter as we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. Uh, we took a little bit of hiatus at the end of the school year for her as she was doing testing and kind of things got uh, out. You're blaming school? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I blame parenting and scheduling conflicts. Come sure, on, man. Sure. Get I mean, together. I went to some film festivals. I got busy, but uh, <laughs> she had schooling to do. So, you know, it was a bit of this and that. Um, but we're going to get into the Universal Horror Monsters. Uh, so hopefully that coverage is up and running by the time that this interview drops. Are you, are you going to ask me where where people could find me? Nah. No? <laughs> All right. Well, it's been real great, guys. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So, Brad, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on all social medias <laughs> at MouthDork. Like I said, I'm currently at Comic-Con, so you want to check out my Instagram. I'm going to have all kinds of cool shots from inside the convention center, lots of action figure poses. Well, I mean, in all seriousness, like your social media presence during Comic-Con 
A, makes me hate you with jealousy. Yes. Uh, which I know you want and you interpret as a compliment. Oh, yes. So it's good. Uh, but also B, like, makes me feel like I get a chance to kind of be there and be behind the scenes and experience it even when I can't go. So, you like, as a person who doesn't get to go to Comic-Con, you guys should be following Brad for his coverage of it. Yeah, my coverage is on fleek. I think that's what the kids say, right? Which street on is that? Fleek? Uh, all right. So you're also going to want to follow all the other dorks from In the Mouth of Dorkness who are also at Comic-Con. Everyone oh. but Billy. Oh. Uh, oh. Oh. Darren Smith oh. at the Disco Dork. Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren. Uh, Brian Young at the Turtle Dork. We're all in San Diego right now having a great time. And Billy, I think he's watching sports on TV or something. I'm not sure. That checks out. Yeah. <laughs> it's so sad. It's so sad. Okay. Um, well, great. On that note, uh, until next time. Until next time. <laughs> Take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? 